Okay, so how many of you feel like you have been chasing your, your tail all morning? I know it's true because I got here late this morning and I watched you all stream into the parking lot late. <laughs> there were a lot of you late this morning. That happens, doesn't it? Sometimes there's just a, it's just kind of a rough morning. It doesn't all fall together for us. So... Um, are you ready for the preaching of the Word? Is your, your heart, your soul, your mind all in one place now this morning? That's good. That's good. You know, it's been a long time since I've had to apply for a job, and uh, that's a good thing. But I do uh, remember that, uh, you know, when you apply for a job, you have to fill out that dreaded form called an application and, uh, you know, you sit there and the thing's on your knee and you got a, a pen and, and you're trying to fill in those little boxes and uh, the pen bleeds onto the paper and you misspell words and, and you think, man, I'm an idiot. Nobody would ever hire me for looking at this. And um, um, in my case, maybe that was true uh, until my mother said, you know, you don't have to fill it out there. You can bring it home, fill it out and take it back. And I said, Really? And she said, yeah, and I, I, wow, things improved uh, from there. I got a lot more jobs after that. So, um, so here, here's what I've got for you this morning, just to sort of celebrate the, uh, the stress of having to fill out job applications. I went out on the Internet, and, and I found some uh, funny statements that have been uh, gleaned from job applications by people who work in human resources, And they've kind of posted them here for you. So let me just give you a few of these and kind of help get your brain going this morning. So the first is reasons for uh, leaving the last job. And uh, one of them here, it says, uh, responsibility makes me nervous. (laughs) Responsibility makes me nervous. Another one said, uh, they insisted that all employees get to work by 845 every morning. Couldn't work under those conditions. Another one said was uh, met with a string of broken promises and lies, as well as cockroaches. Here's another one. It says, I was working for my mom until she decided to move. And then this is the last one, Andy. You've probably seen this one. The company made me a scapegoat, just like my three previous employers. <laughs> yeah, Okay. Oh, here's, a, here's another one, uh, special requests and uh, job objectives. So here's one. Please uh, call me after 5.30 because I'm self-employed and my employer does not know that I'm looking for another job. You got you to gotta think about that one, right? <laughs> or how about this one? Now, my goal is to be a meteorologist, but since I have no training in meteorology, I suppose I should try stock brokerage. I always want to be a brain surgeon. Here's another one. Uh, I procrastinate, especially when the task is unpleasant. <laughs> or how about physical disabilities? You know, do you have any physical disabilities? Here's one. Minor allergies to house cats and Mongolian sheep. <laughs> Personal interests. That's another one, right? Go to your personal interests. Here's one. Donating blood, 14 gallons so far. <laughs> I just see that conversation around the water cooler, you know. What would you do this weekend? Yeah, I gave a gallon. Here's another one. 
And then there are the small typos that can change the meaning. Education, college, August 1880 to May 1984. Yeah, it's a long time. How about this one? Work experience, dealing with customers' conflicts that arouse. Or here's another. Uh, Develop and recommend an annual operating expense fudget. (laughs) Yeah, applying for a position as a CPA, no doubt. How about this one? I'm a rabid typist. (laughs) And then my favorite, Andy. Instrumental in ruining entire operation for a Midwest chain operation. (laughs) Ah, fantastic. Well, I am going to speak to you this morning about work. The topic of work. Yeah, I already heard a groan. That's it. I thought this was Sunday. It is. It is Sunday. Do you know that we spend on average uh, at least 50% of our lives working? 50% of our lives are spent working. It is the major endeavor of our lives. And yet for, for many of us, work is a source of great pain and frustration. I will never forget, it still rattles around in my head, a statement that someone made to me back 18 years ago when I announced my resignation from Bank of America to join the staff here at Foothill Bible Church as an associate pastor. And I had one of my coworkers came up to me and they said, wow, you are so fortunate to be able to go and to do something that you really like to do. I'm envious. And I thought, what a sad statement. What a sad statement that was. And that was from a person who was very, very talented, very good at what they did. And yet for them, they found no hope, no meaning, no fulfillment. They made a lot of money, but there was no sense at all for them in which the thing that was occupying the vast majority of their life, they couldn't really connect to it. I want to ask you a series of questions as we get started a series of sort of diagnostic questions. I'm not going to ask for shows of hands. Instead, what I'm going to ask you to do is just sort of make some notes in your mind as I go through this. But the first question I want to ask you is is simply this. How many of you like your job? No, you don't have to. No hands. No hands. It would be too depressing. Just ask you that question. Just ask you, do I like my job? And maybe a, maybe a follow-up question to that is, would I change jobs if I could? Would I change jobs if I could? Do I like what I'm doing? And would I change what I'm doing if I could? Or another question to ask is, is how many of you are basically working for a paycheck? When it all boils down, it's really about a paycheck. Why do I get up, you know, yo-ho, yo-ho, it's off to work, I go because I owe, or however. I don't know how that goes. <laughs> Made sense to me when I... Anyway, you're working for a paycheck. Or asked this way, can you find any significance in what you do? Any, any eternal significance? Any eternal value 
in what you are spending 50% of your life doing. Would you categorize yourself as, as bored or unchallenged at work? Bored or unchallenged? Do you see your job as, as repetitive, routine, dead end even? Do you feel trapped at work? Are you trapped in your career, trapped in your job because of financial responsibilities? Is, is that really kind of what sums up what your working life is about? How about this? Does Sunday and Monday seem worlds apart? Just worlds apart. Can you, could you communicate your work in terms of Christian purpose? Could you integrate your faith and your job and and communicate your work in terms of, of Christian purpose? Have you ever even thought about that? Are you hiding your Christianity Monday through Friday? There's the, there's the person who shows up at work Monday through Friday, right? With a certain way of carrying themselves. And then there's the Sunday person. And they don't really integrate well. You find it difficult to make complex ethical decisions that you're called upon to make at work? Do you survive by perhaps two sets of of ethical standards? I've got my business ethics because this is what it takes to get the job done. This is what I've got to do in order to survive. And then I have my weekend ethics, my Sunday ethics. And there's a great amount of divergence between the two of them. Just business, you know. Do what you got to do. You hate your job? You wonder if this is what you've got to look forward to for the next 30 years? Are you kidding me? This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. How about this? Can you find yourself identifying with this term? I'm working for the weekends. All right, TGIF, right? It's all about Wednesday's hump day. If I can make it over Wednesday, I can... You know, work through Thursday, glide into Friday, and the weekend's here again. Monday comes all too soon, right? Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, the stress, the tension, you get a little irritable. It's all building up again. Why? Well, because i got to get up and go to work again. Maybe you've been at your work for quite a long time, and so for you, you're not working for the weekend. You're working for for the ultimate weekend, retirement. Right, if I can just hang on, just two more years, and I'm there. I'm going to retire. Life's going to get good. Maybe you can identify with this. I make plenty of money, but I am still restless. Restless. Maybe you've wondered about this. How, how am I going? I'm a Christian. And, and, I, and, I, and I know that I, that I need to, to live as a Christian and I need to preach the gospel and I get all of that, but I don't know how to do it at work. How do I influence my coworkers for Christ? How do I go about that? 
Or how about this? Are you having trouble balancing your work demands with your other interests and commitments? Just constantly running from one thing to the next. Life out of balance, it seems, all the time. Just, you know, sort of off tilt a little bit. Or maybe you think your job lacks dignity. Maybe you don't even like to tell people what you do for a living because you, you just, you're kind of embarrassed by it. You don't think there's much dignity associated with what I do. How about this one, Moms. Do you find yourself struggling with, with trying to balance your responsibilities both inside and outside the home? You don't feel like you're doing a good job at either. Or maybe as a, a stay-at-home mom, you, you feel frustrated, undervalued. Remember my wife telling me, and she certainly shared it with many others, when she first became a stay-at-home mom, little, little child at home. She's sitting on the edge of the bathtub, and in those days it was cloth diapers. You can see them at museums. <laughs> cloth diapers, and she's dipping the diaper in the toilet, right? Sitting on the edge of the bathtub and thinking to herself, four years of college education, dipping, dipping, dipping. How does all of that relate? Does a workplace, moms, does a workplace seem to offer the fulfillment that you can't find at home? If I could, if I could just get a job, you know, I, I could feel useful. I'd feel valuable. Here I am dipping, dipping, dipping. Hey, Mom, can you articulate to others why and how wiping runny noses and cleaning up spilled milk has eternal significance? Can you do that? We could go on and on with these kinds of questions. I think all of us can identify at some level with one or more. Everybody, would you agree with this statement? Success in life means success at work. Would you agree with that statement? Success in life means success at work. I hope you could because it's a biblical statement. It's a biblical statement. But the, but the problem is, is, is the way we judge success. See, we've created our, our, our own definition of success that, that oftentimes lies outside of the Scriptures. And, and so that sort of a statement, success in life equals success in work, is just hard to fathom. I mean, if success is, is based on the four P's, promotion, prestige, power, and pay, then no, that statement's not true. But if success is in work is defined as God would have it defined in his scriptures, then indeed, that statement is very true. Success at work is success in life. This is a huge topic. Huge topic. It's been, it's been swirling around in my head for a very long time in, in one form or another. And 
was telling somebody earlier, I almost quit on this uh, about Wednesday afternoon. I was, was working on it. I thought, there's no way that I can do this. Because I had boxed myself into to thinking about trying to handle this in three weeks. And I, and I was just overwhelmed and I was going to quit and not, not deal with it. But then, uh, and then I had this liberating thought. And that is, I can preach longer than three weeks on this topic if I want to. It's interesting how we can live in our own self-constructed boxes. And once I, once I blew out the sides of the box, it all of a sudden got really good. So here we are. This weekend, for the next seven weeks, I've got to chart it out, so don't worry. We're going we're gonna to deal with the topic of work. Do you know in the 20-year history of this church, we have never dealt with this topic in anything but a passing way? Never. It's time. It's time we address it. We address it head on. We address it biblically. We, we take the time to let the Word of God really shape and mold the way we think about this most important aspect of our lives. So what I'm hoping to do over these next weeks is to, is to construct with you a biblical theology of work. A biblical theology of work. To, to put a significant piece in the puzzle of a Christian worldview. Now, why is it important we do this? Why is it important that we do this? Well, there are, there are many reasons, but the first reason that starts out is, is simply this. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's an issue of the lordship of of Jesus Christ. When God raised the man Jesus from the dead, he made him Lord of all. Peter says it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. By virtue of his resurrection, God the Father made him Lord of all. Lord of all. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that that recognizing and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is essential to salvation. It is essential to salvation. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now his Lordship doesn't merely apply to the spiritual realm alone. It is clearly that, but it is bigger than that. It is more comprehensive than that. It is more profound than that. The Lordship of Jesus Christ applies to every single aspect of life. All of our lives in all of their complexities must be brought by faith under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to to grow in the image of Christ. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, he said, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to be made like Jesus Christ. The man who lived his entire life 
under the lordship of the Father. Submission to the Father. Walking in the Spirit. It's not just the spiritual realm, beloved. It is every single aspect of my life and yours. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's an accounting. There is an accounting that you will give to your Lord for your life. And that accounting will include your working life. How you conducted yourself in work, at work. I think what I want to do to sort of set the stage for all of this is is to talk just briefly here about a number of the false views with regard to work that are out there. False views. And these are, these are false views that, that find their place within the Christian church. I'm not going to worry, at least for now, about the false views that find themselves uh, or express themselves among those who, who wouldn't even make lip service to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They, they have no interest in Him. They are outside the body of faith, you know, the unbelievers. Instead, I just want to just look at some of the ones that, that manifest themselves within the community of the believing. And for each of these, there's a number of them here, for each of these, I'm not going to deal with them in any kind of exhaustive fashion at all. But, but as we proceed forward in the, in the weeks to come, we'll be circling back and, and explaining some of these in more detail and, and why they're wrong. But let me just kind of whet your appetite with a, with a few. False views of work. False views of work. First, Work is is the result of the fall. Therefore, it is a necessary evil. Work is a result of the fall. Therefore, it is a necessary evil. This is a wrong approach. It's a misunderstanding. Basically, this view confuses the results of the fall upon our work. That is, that that it made our work more difficult, more frustrating... So we would go to Genesis 3 and we would read there verse 17 and 18 that God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The fall of Adam, the the disobedience there back in paradise, rearranged the mathematics of work. It made work far more difficult, far more frustrating. But it didn't change the purpose. It didn't change the purpose of work. 
Because the purpose of work was given by God prior to the fall. Prior to the fall. Now, if you've absorbed at least some portion of this idea that, that because, of the, because of the fall, all work is evil, it's necessary, but you know, it's, it's something to be avoided if we could, then you have, you have drunk from a poison well. It's not true. We'll come back and speak more about the effect of the, of the fall upon work. Another false view. Another false view is, is the idea that it's all going to burn, so why bother? It's all going to burn anyway, right? Christ is going to return. He's going to consume the earth in fire, the judgments of fire. Second Peter 3, 7 talks about this. So, so since it's all going to burn up, and, then, and I'm granted I'm giving you sort of the extreme view of this, but, but it's the basic idea. Hey, listen, it's all going to burn up anyway, and since it's all going to burn up, what's the point? Let's just do as little as we need to to get by. Why involve myself in any kind of great endeavor for something that is merely temporal and transitory and is going to be consumed in the fires of judgment anyway? And even if you don't take it so far as to to think it's going to be consumed in the fires of judgment, you you take the approach that, listen, it's not going to really outlive me, or even if it outlives me, it won't outlive me long. So why bother? Why bother? At best, it's temporal. At best, it's, it's transitory, so it's ultimately futile. I just need to involve myself in spiritual work that's eternal. That's what I need to be about. All the rest of this stuff is a waste of time. Waste of time. Beloved, let me ask you a question. Why, why sustain the creation if it's going to ultimately be destroyed anyway? Why bother? Why bother? Well, here's an answer. Simple answer for you. It's godlike. It's a godlike thing to do. Kind of an amazing thought, isn't it? But when you go to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, it's, it's talking about the cosmic Christ. And it's, and it's just extolling him in, in this incredible sort of doxology of who Jesus is and what, and what, he, is, what he does. In verse 17, it, it makes this interesting statement. It says, he is before all things. And, and then here's the clause. And in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. It is Jesus who is actively at work holding the creation together. And not just sort of holding it together with, you know, bubblegum and barbed wire. He he is sustaining this creation in the most amazing ways. As it it radiates just incredible beauty and and complexity and and design and and passion and, and beauty and on and on it goes, right? I mean, Jesus is not just sort of uh, involved in other things and got his finger in the dike so the thing doesn't collapse. He is, he is intimately, actively involved in every aspect and at every level of the creation. And we live in a fantastic world, isn't that true? Jesus is at work at this. And so 
the answer to the question is, is why sustain the creation if it's going to be destroyed anyways? Is because that's what Jesus is doing. He is sustaining the creation, and he knows it's going to be destroyed. Is that true? Since he is the judge and destroyer. And yet he is actively involved. Because the time's not yet. Think about this for a minute. Let's just kind of speculate a little. So you're Jesus. And, and uh, for the sake of this illustration, you know tomorrow is the day you're going to destroy it. Would you sustain it today? Would you sustain it today? Or would you just sort of back off, pull the plug early? Got other things to do? Of course not. Right up to the very moment that the cataclysm falls. Jesus is actively, will be actively involved at every aspect of the creation, sustaining it in its beauty and glory. Why bother to work? Why bother to invest your life in things that are going to be destroyed ultimately anyways? Because it's godlike. It's godlike. I mean, Jesus doesn't just paint this creation with, with just shades of gray, right? He lavishes color everywhere. It, it's not just a, a very simplistic sort of thing. It's, it's complexity. And, and the more we study it, the more complexity we, we come to understand, the more, the more creative genius we see. It's like peeling open the layers of an onion. We just, we just keep going, whether it's the, it's the telescope or the microscope. We, we continue to see that, whoa, there's more here than we thought. Crazy stuff. I mean, like, like there's stuff out there that, that we will never see. Yet it's there. Even now, we're find sea creatures, you know, deep in the... In the ocean, right? I mean, and they, and they begin to examine these things. Are whoa! Look at the complexity of that thing. It lives in dark its whole life. It's okay. It's got its own light bulb. You know, it's it's amazing. Sights, sounds. It's all there. The best HD TV and sound system you can imagine is, is just nothing more than seeking to try to capture what God puts on display all the time. I was talking with a friend of mine just a little over a week ago. We were, we were talking about the progress being made in, in HD televisions. And he was telling me about there's some new high pixel TV coming out because the screens have gotten so big now that even the 1080p DP things... I'm already said more than I know. <laughs> Basically, they're, they, they're not sharp enough. They're not clear enough. And I said to him, I said, you know what's really cool? I just, I just look out. And I, I don't have an 80-inch TV. I've got like a, I don't know what it is. You know, it's like 200-something TV. You know, I see, with the help of glasses, <laughs> in HD from here to here. And all the way across. And the screen is amazingly tall. And I still have good hearing. And so I can hear 
like the, the incredible complexity. My, I say to my wife, honey, you hear this rain in? She'll say, how do you know that? I said, I can hear it. She says, really, you hear that? And I said, of course I can hear that. I can. Listen, here it is. When you emulate God, when you emulate God, it's, it's being Godlike. So, so plant the garden. Paint your house. Build a bookcase. Write poetry. Write music. Make film. Be Godlike. Sustain the creation in all of its beauty, all of its complexity. There's another false view of work that can inhabit the community of believers. Third, it's the idea that you can't serve God and mammon. Now, that one sounds really spiritual. Hey, brother, you, you can't serve God and mammon. So what does that mean? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea based on the mistaken understanding that, of what Christ was teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 6 and verse 24. And when Jesus makes that statement, hey, listen, you, you can't serve. No one can serve two masters. You cannot. Not as hard to do it. Not only a few people manage to pull it off. Jesus says you cannot. It is impossible to serve both God and wealth. What's he talking about? Is he, by that statement, is sort of invalidating work? Of course not. He's talking about ultimate loyalties. Ultimate loyalties. You cannot give your ultimate loyalty to Jesus Christ and to the pursuit of wealth, he says. It is impossible. You will love the one and hate the other. But it is not a negative statement with regard to work. Nor is it a negative statement with regard to the financial rewards that frequently come with someone who is skilled at their work. It's talking about worship. You can't worship two gods. Fourth. This one's, a, this one's a little more insidious. But this is it. It's, it's what we call the sacred-secular divide. The sacred-secular divide. When you boil this down, it, it's basically this idea that, that God has two types of people. Two types of people in the world. There are a few individuals who are special. They, they, have been, they have been called by him to a, to a spiritually higher plane of ministry than most other people. They are the sacred ones. In this view, the called are closer to God. They are more sensitive and obedient to God's word. They're more holy. Than others. They are ultimately closer to God's heart. I mean, it must be true because we call upon them to pray. 
or in a public setting, it's time to pray. We call on the Holy One to pray because we're sure God will hear their prayer better than ours. They are the sacred workers. They are the clergy. The clergy. (laughs) Right? But in some traditions, they even wear special clothes. Set them apart. They sit in special seats. Everybody knows who they are. Everybody else who's not part of the clergy is part of the laity, lay people. I'm a lay person. I'm a clergy. The lay people work at secular jobs. The clergy work at at sacred jobs. And the two don't meet. Beloved, can I just tell you this? That kind of thinking is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. Absolutely foreign to the New Testament. You cannot find anything in the New Testament that supports that kind of notion. That kind of thinking actually finds its roots in a a misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the Old Testament. And in particular, the priesthood of the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, where they were indeed set apart from the people. They could not even own land like the rest of the people. And it has been imported improperly into our day and that of our ancestors. And so there is this sort of quasi-Levitical priesthood model that, that is sitting out there in the backs of many people's minds. I mean, the most obvious example of it, of course, would be seen in the Roman Catholic Church, right? where you are part of the priesthood there, you don't marry, you're set apart, you are completely different than everybody else. Or if you're a nun. But, you know, we're in in Protestantism, right? We, we, We got that nailed. We know that that's not right. But see, we've drunk from the same poison well, so we have our own priesthood. We just, you know, a little more coy about it. We let them marry. Peter says all believers are priests, part of a new priesthood. Did you know that? That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? All the followers of Jesus Christ are part of a new priesthood. And you know what makes this priesthood unique? It's not based on heredity. It's not because your dad was a priest that, that you know, what are you going to grow up when you, your son? You're going to be a priest if you're under the Levitical system. You don't have any options. Dad's a priest, you're a priest. And your kids will be priests. But this new priesthood of which you and I are a part is not based on physical descent. It is based upon the saving grace of God. Amen? And listen how Peter says it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are 
a new priesthood. New priesthood. Now, within, uh, within Protestantism, and, and certainly to some degree or another, within our tradition, our strand of Protestantism, they have a sacred, secular divide. And it, and it reveals itself sort of in an unspoken pecking order. You can kind of observe it. It goes something like this. The really spiritual ones are missionaries. They're missionaries. See, because they've given up everything. They've given up their secular job. And, and they're going to go overseas. And they're, going to, and they're going to do work for God. And their lives are going to count for eternity in a way that, that those of us who remain behind will never be able to count. That's kind of how it goes. They're missionaries. They occupy first position on the podium of the holy. Just below them are church planters. Church planters. Because, see, they leave the, the safety and security of an established and existing church to go out and to, and to plant and establish a new church. They make incredible sacrifice to do this. And thus they are clearly closer to God's heart. Clearly closer. Then there's pastors. Those missionaries, church planters, pastors. Then Christian workers. And then finally there are bivocational pastors. See, they're lower on the totem pole because they haven't figured out how to make the entire break yet. They're kind of half in, half out, you know. The message that gets communicated subtly, sometimes not so subtly, is if you really, really, really want to serve God, you really want to serve God, you need to quit your job, you need to go to seminary, and you need to become a missionary or a pastor. You really want to serve God. Quit your job. Go to seminary. Become a missionary. Become a pastor. Because when you do that, you will be on the front lines really serving God. Now, if you you don't desire to do this, you don't desire this, then, then essentially your, your role in the, in the body, in the church, is, is something like this. Contribute a few hours of volunteer service each week and make sure you put money in the plate when it passes by. Give us a few hours, put some money in the plate so that the real ministry can be done. Real ministry can be done. Now, we would never be so crass as to say it that way. But that kind of thinking easily slips in. Easily slips in. Beloved, think with me. If you have to disengage from your job in order to do real ministry, then unless you quit your job, then the best you can hope for is to be a kind of a part-time Christian. Right? You know, maybe I'll cut my hours back at work so I can really 
really get devoted to the ministry. But the best I can hope for is part-time. Just a part-time Christian. I'm just, after all, I'm just a layperson. Just a layperson. But see, beloved, that, that contradicts what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, following. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There are some that God has set aside and given an equipping and training role through the teaching of the Scriptures. For the benefit of the body, until the entire body grows up, matures, and is doing the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry. Until the entire body attains to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to to maturity. This is not simply a a, a test of one's Bible knowledge. That is not the, the measurement of maturity. Maturity in Christ is an integrated life and faith. In which the Bible becomes your lifeblood. That you think biblically, you behave biblically in every aspect of life. Work is not outside the pale. Listen, if 50% of your life is off limits to the Bible, right? I mean, you know, the Bible doesn't really have anything to say. It just, it just talks about sort of the spiritual work we do, and it's just about evangelism, and it's, it's just about Bible teaching, and it's just about, you know, putting money in the plate, whatever. I mean, but if it essentially doesn't really impact how I spend 50% of my life, other than a few statements like, don't steal, right? Don't rob from your employer. I mean, if that's, the, if that's sort of the sum total of what the, what the Bible has to say about this most significant aspect of my life, then, then basically what we're saying is that your work has no value to God if he doesn't address it. It has no value to him. And if your work has no value to God, then at best, you're a second-class Christian. Half your life, God doesn't care about. But that's not true. That's not true. God intimately cares about and is involved in every detail, every aspect of your life. You believe that? Apostle Paul says it this way, folks. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that includes how we think about work. How we think about work. These next uh, seven weeks are not going to be your typical sermons. I guess you'd say eight weeks because this is not a typical sermon. Right? We're in a detour. We're in a, we're in a side track, rabbit trail, detour, whatever. 
from Matthew's gospel, right? Remember Matthew? Wrote the first gospel in the New Testament? Yeah, by the grace of God, I got it all planned out. We're gonna, we'll re-engage right after Easter. But this is going to occupy us. But it's, but it's not going to be your usual kinds of sermon. It's, it's going to be different. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be more of like a, a just kind of teaching. So I want to I develop a, a systematic biblical worldview of work. The theology of work. So here, here's, here are the messages. This, this is what's coming. So plan your, plan your illness so you don't miss. So this, today is nothing but introduction, just introduction. But here, here's where we go. Next week, next week is, it's entitled Workers by Design, Workers by Design. And the basic idea is, well, I want to look at creation, and I want to look at the dominion mandate located there in creation. So the design of work. Next week after that is, is the problem with work. Entitled it, The Problem with Work. What happened when Adam fell? What are the impact of that upon work? It's not a problem with work. Third, I want to deal with a topic called work and the wisdom of Proverbs. Work and the wisdom of Proverbs. And, and basically what I want to deal with there is the whole issue of diligence and laziness in the book of Proverbs. Okay, that'll be fun. Fourth, the redemption of work. The redemption of work. Does being a Christian change the way we work? That's kind of the question. Does it change the way we work? Should it change the way we work? And if so, how? So we're going to look at the redemption of work. Fifth, the doctrine of vocation. The doctrine of vocation. The word vocation simply means calling. Calling. So we talk about, you know, so-and-so was called to the ministry. Well, there are only a few people that get called, and everybody else, you know, they don't have a phone. So I want to I talk with you about the calling of God in our lives. Because there's a calling upon all of us. So what is your calling? How can you discern it? The doctrine of vocation. Sixth, I want to talk about work and the Great Commission. Work and the Great Commission. And, and so how do we fit together work and our mandate to make disciples? How does that fit together? Okay. And then finally, seven, work and welfare. Work and welfare. What does the Bible teach about care for the poor? Think of it this way. If God were to establish a kingdom here on earth in which he wrote the laws of that kingdom, recognizing that there there are poor and destitute people that are part of his kingdom that need to be cared for, what kind of laws would he write? What would it look like? And see, you know, the really amazing thing is we don't have to speculate Because God has done that once in history. He has established his kingdom here on earth. And he wrote extensively in the care of the poor. And so I think there's much we can learn if we will go back and and think. So work and welfare. 
Now, along the way, I need to, I want to provide a feedback mechanism. Some kind of a feedback mechanism. There, there undoubtedly be, at least for some, some questions that come to your minds, maybe some comments, maybe some topics that, boy, I, I sure hope they get addressed. It's been kind of rolling around in my mind. I'd really like to, you know, to hear about this. And you know what? If, if you've got that in your mind, you're probably not alone. There's probably at least several other people out here that are thinking the same kinds of thoughts. So here's, here's what we want to do. I, I, I need you to email me. I want you to email me, and I want, me, I want you to ask the question. If you're of the email generation, but if you're of that old school technology, you know, that's old school technology, the newer technology is to text. So text me. Okay? Keep your question short, 144 characters. No. <laughs> text me your question. Text me your question. Because the way, I've, the way I've built the series is there's time if necessary, for one final week. It would, be, it would be the ninth week, and it would be a time to just handle all the Q&A. So if it doesn't get handled in the course of the series, uh, and there's enough questions, I'm going to package them all up, and we'll handle them on Palm Sunday. Okay? So that's the plan. So email, text, you know, do it during the service if you want so you don't forget. Okay? It's all right. And we'll do our best to handle them. Let's pray. Father, we, we are a people who have been redeemed by grace through faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. You have chosen us out of darkness. You have transferred us from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And our Father, you are at work through your indwelling spirit, transforming us, changing the way we think, the way we act, the way we interact with our world. And our Father, work is such an important part of what it means to be human. We can even say that it it is a component of the Imago Dei to, to be made in the image of God. It is a godlike thing. And yet, our Father, we confess that we have drunken from our culture and its poison fountain in many things. Work is one of them. So, Lord, as we set out together on this, we pray for your grace to guide and navigate the way. We pray that you would help us to be true and faithful to your word. I like the Ivano verse, one who, one who rightly divides the word of truth. Father, we pray for our own hearts that they would be soft, that our ears would be open, that we would be willing to reconsider certain ideas that perhaps we have held for a long time that, that need to change. And we pray, our Father, that as a result of our, of our weeks together in the Word of God on this concentrated and focused topic, that their end result would be a, a liberation and, and an, an enthusiasm and, and even a, and a new blossoming, a renaissance, as it were, within our own work environments, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out with a, with a renewed sense of passion and creativity. Oh, Lord, we desire to glorify Christ in everything. Please enable us in this way. 
Amen. Blessings on you, uh, beloved. Enjoy your Sunday.